You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing Holocaust tourism. What is Holocaust tourism, and why has its popularity been on the rise? Why are so many people interested in traveling to Holocaust memorial sites and museums, like the Anne Frank House and the Auschwitz concentration camp? And what messages do these Holocaust memorial sites promote about the past and about today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Daniel Reynolds. He is the author of the book, Postcards from Auschwitz, Holocaust Tourism and the Meaning of Remembrance. You can read an excerpt from his book, Postcards from Auschwitz, in the upcoming summer issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Dan. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brett. Thanks very much for having me. It's nice to chat with you, too. Of course. So, I have to say you've written a fascinating book that really takes readers around the world with you to Holocaust memorial sites and museums in Europe, America, Australia, Israel, everywhere really. And that was something that struck me was how global this interest is in memorializing the Holocaust. So I also noticed when I first started reading your book that I was having sort of multiple reactions to this idea of Holocaust tourism. And I think it's clear that you must have anticipated that for the readers because you address it pretty directly. But, uh, you know, on the one hand, I was feeling like I certainly think it's important for people to know about the near annihilation of Europe's Jews and all of the people, not only Nazis, who were responsible for that. And then at the same time, I felt somewhat apprehensive about people's motivations to sort of witness the gruesome deaths of six million Jews. And this is a tension that you explore in the book that I found quite helpful. So what I thought would be good to start us off, could you tell us um, what exactly you mean by Holocaust tourism? What all does that term include? Maybe if you could paint a picture for us of what one might likely encounter at Holocaust memorial sites or the range of things one might encounter at these places. Sure, Brent. Thank you. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that sense of tension, which is something I definitely want to uh, keep alive in the case of Holocaust tourism. I think you might expect pilgrimage, educational travel, but it's often the case that participants in tourism to sites of Holocaust remembrance are just uh, vacationers at some destination where there happens to also be a Holocaust memorial site uh, that they uh, spontaneously choose to visit. So uh, the, the kinds of sites that I look at in the book, I, uh, the first half of the book focuses on the extermination camps. And that's certainly uh, both extermination camps and the other uh, Nazi concentration camps uh, throughout uh, occupied uh, German-occupied Europe uh, during World War II uh, are some of the prime uh, memorial sites that visitors can can access. But one might also visit the the former Jewish ghetto in Warsaw, or the Jewish neighborhood of Berlin, or deportation memorials, or of course places. And you mentioned Sydney, and of course. Washington, D.C.'s U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, when it first opened in 1993, there was a lot of discussion about why 
the United States needed to have a Holocaust mm-hmm. Memorial Museum mm-hmm. uh, site so far removed from where where the events took place. Um, so I think you're right. This definitely speaks to the increasingly global nature of uh, of, of Holocaust remembrance and and of tourism. I mean, we're living in an age when. Thanks to the internet, uh, you know, transportation, global transportation is more accessible to more people than it ever has been before. Uh, in the post-Cold War era, we have uh, easier access to sites that were previously difficult to reach. The kinds of tourists one might see are also varied. Um, it's people from all ages, people from many different nationalities, uh, people who have more or less familiarity with the events that they're learning about on site. So that does produce some, uh, sometimes some tense moments uh, and questions about what's the right way to behave at a site of Holocaust Memorial. But I think that might be part of the argument that I make is that is all part of tourism. Pilgrimage aspect, the, the sort of sense of reverence that one might bring to a site, but also the encounter with people who may not share that same sense of decorum. Right, right. Could you just, for those who uh, have not been, could you maybe explain just taking the first part of what you said, the Nazi concentration camps in Europe that have been opened up to visitors now? Are What are some of the things that one might likely encounter if they were to visit one of these sites? Since the end of the Cold War, uh, Auschwitz has definitely become the, I would say, the, the largest site of travel to sites, a uh, site of Holocaust remembrance. There are over two million people every year who visit the memorial site. Mm. And, um, and I think that's one of the first things that one has to be prepared when one goes is the sheer number mm. of visitors at mm-hmm. some of these sites, particularly at the better the, the camps whose whose names are more familiar maybe to the to mm-hmm. the public. Um, it can be quite jarring. Um, I think uh, at Auschwitz they offer tour guides uh, tours in seventeen different languages. Wow! So you're going through these very small exhibition spaces that were never meant to be ex- exhibition spaces with mm-hmm. people who are trying to hear their tour guide but are vying. For you know, for for acoustics with uh, 16 other languages. It's quite um, challenging, I think, to uh, also just even arrive in a in a bus in a parking lot and see bookstores and refreshment stands uh, as mm. one sees at any kind of tourist site. But that kind of encounter with the sort of, you know, the commercial aspect of tourism is something that one can't avoid. But I think that the minute one sort of gets through the entrance gates and is paired with one's guide and starts to walk around, I think the sense of just seriousness of the history that one's going to encounter kind of takes over. There are, you know, other campsites uh, that are far less well known. Um, so in Poland, you also have extermination sites of Belzec and Sobibor, which are really uh, kind of at remote corners of Poland and have not, are not, are off the beaten path. And I think one would have a very different experience there. I think um, both times that I visited Sobibor with uh, my companions, we were the only people on the site. Uh, mm, and wow. it was a, yeah, it was a very um, sobering memorial too. It was in some state of neglect, but at the same time, I have to say it was probably the most uh, powerful uh, site for me in terms of 
what took place there. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that some people go there to make pilgrimage. Others are there as part of, you know, they're on a, a family vacation and then they work this into their itinerary. Could you talk a bit about who the people are who are making these travel decisions? So when people you say are making pilgrimage, who are those people? What is this pilgrimage? Um, and, you know, are there, what are the reasons that might differ for Jewish visitors to visit these sites versus non-Jewish visitors? So for what reasons are people either making a pilgrimage or deciding that we need to incorporate this into our vacation? Yes, that's a great question. The uh, certainly Jewish visitors to sites of uh, Holocaust remembrance are would often car- categorize their their experience as a pilgrimage. Certainly, for people who've lost family members uh, or who have roots in communities that were exterminated by the Nazis, would um, be paying a visit there as a, out of a sense of pilgrimage. You know, that would also certainly include uh, sometimes survivors who uh, will go back to these sites and, mm-hmm. and are uh, paying homage to their to other survivors uh, and those who were, were not so fortunate. But it's also important to recognize that there are other uh, people for whom, uh, non-Jewish visitors for whom the site is equally um, significant in some way, maybe not necessarily because of a familial connection, but just out of familiarity with the history of the place and the, and, and the, hmm. the sense of um, import that the Holocaust has had on, on how we understand Western civilization since 1945. You might also have education, uh, school groups make uh, making t- uh, trips to, mm-hmm. to sites of remembrance. And that's actually raising a different question that is often framed for them by the educational institution as a form of pilgrimage or an encounter with history. But students don't necessarily have a choice in whether they participate or not in it. Sure. And that can sometimes lead to, uh, you know, some tensions in terms of what, what's expected and what's what actually takes place. But um, somebody may be making a spontaneous decision while vacationing in Krakow to take a bus and go visit Auschwitz the next day without any real sense of preparation, uh, which I think generally is a mistake. I think one wants to prepare for these kinds of visits. But even uh, that kind of spontaneity notwithstanding, it's perfectly possible for a person like that to have a profound experience uh, once they get Mm -hmm. there. The other thing to remember is that these sites have changed over time in terms of how they present the history. Uh, Auschwitz happens to be located in Poland. The dominant discourse during the Cold War uh, in Poland was that of of sort of uh, Polish suffering. Um, Poland today is a as a mostly Catholic nation, yeah. uh, but a story of Polish suffering at the hands of, of, of the Nazis uh, right. during Nazi occupation. So that has changed over time, certainly since the um, end of the Cold War. Uh, the Jewish victims who are at Auschwitz in particular, by far the most numerous victim group, are now getting the recognition, getting the, I guess, the acknowledgement uh, that should have mm-hmm. been there all along. Yeah, yeah. That's helpful and and takes me into then I think what I wanted to ask you next, which is, you know, what at this point are the primary goals for Holocaust memorial sites? And perhaps they vary site by site, country by country. But I do think, you know, uh, you raise in the book that there were tensions around, I believe, the establishment of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum that 
Some felt strongly that it needed to instill in visitors about the specificities of anti-Jewish attitudes and why Nazis and their collaborators sought to eradicate Jews from Europe. And there were others who felt that there, such a museum, such a memorial, should be teaching broader, more general lessons about tolerance and respect for everyone and not focus so much on the specificities of Jews. So is is that attention that is plays out in, in these places or or how is that being dealt with now? You know, so how do they these places try to form their goals and, and how does that work? Great. Yes, that I, I think that's a, a, a running theme in Holocaust remembrance, not even just in tourism, but in how one represents the Holocaust in literature or film is uh, to what extent should one pay attention to the specificity of the Holocaust as the Nazi murder of six million Jews? Mm-hmm. Or do we also acknowledge other victim groups of the Nazis like the Sinti and Roma, Jehovah's Witnesses, sure. uh, the first prisoners to be uh, subject to Zyklon B gas uh, were Soviet prisoners of war at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So. What um, what is the balance between the kind of specificity and the, of the Holocaust, which is the unique targeting of European Jewry for for elimination from Europe by the Nazis, yeah. versus a universality? To what extent is you know the the kind of um, man's inhumanity to man is the sort of mm-hmm. old uh, universalist uh, approach to it? And obviously, neither can be taken as both can be taken to an extreme. I mean, if there is nothing to be applied to other situations, then one wonders whether there's any point to having an educational visit in the mm-hmm. first place. At the same time that, you know, I think that the more attention one pays to the specifics, the more lessons can be drawn uh, and applied elsewhere if appropriate. But I would say that, you know, the, the goals of these places, I, I think, ed- certainly educational. So I think their main goal for visitors is to explain what happened, uh, just the very, uh, just the history that unfolded between uh, generally 1942 and 1945 at a specific site. Um, So identifying the victim groups, uh, calling attention in some cases to specific individuals who were, who, who suffered at these sites. Also, how they happen. So, uh, you know, we have this kind of image from film and media, perhaps, of the Holocaust, of you know, and, and the idea of gas chambers, which um, certainly was were used at Auschwitz and also at Majdanek and Treblinka and Belgium, all, all of the Operation Reinhardt uh, campsites, the the extermination camps. But we also have to remember that two million to two and a half million of the victims of the Holocaust were murdered by the Einsatzgruppen, the special forces, special commandos uh, that rounded up Jewish villagers in Eastern Europe and murdered them in forests. So it's not just, we kind of have this overwhelming image of of the kind of extermination camp and concentration uh, camp experience, but that was not the totality of the Holocaust. So it's important for each side to explain what took place what part of the Holocaust took place there and how it happened. And then, of course, why it happened. And that is definitely where the discussion about uh, anti-Semitism in Nazi ideology comes comes out than others. The other really important mission of these sites, though, is 
are is that they're still sites of research. Uh, they're sites hmm. of uh, records are kept there, archives. Hmm. There mm-hmm. is still archaeological research to be conducted. Hmm. Uh, there are there are places where scholars come together to uh, learn about each other's work. Uh, to explore records, uh, you know, there's still many, many, many victims whose names are not known and may never be known. And so there's every effort to recover each of the identity of each victim probably will never be complete, but it's ongoing. Right, right. So speaking of that, of our awareness of these rising incidents of anti-Semitic violence and, and other anti-Semitic hate crimes, as well as racist and Islamic phobic problems right now, do you think that these memorial sites are able to make a difference in present day problems of racism, anti-Semitism, other forms of bigotry, or is that not, is it not really appropriate to put that onto them? Is that not really a fair thing to expect of these memorial sites. Well, I, I, I appreciate how you frame that question because I think it is uh, uh, important to kind of acknowledge that there is only so much a memorial site can do uh, in terms of preventing any other acts of anti-Semitism or violence around the world. You know, the, certainly the, the hope is that they do make a difference and that visitors will take lessons and apply them at some point in their lives if, if, if needed to. I think mm-hmm. if there's any lesson that can be actually practiced by visitors to these sites, it's to think about one's status as a bystander in in a time when we're surrounded by discriminatory violence and to yes. think about what would what would you do uh, to intervene or if uh, you know the we have uh, governments that are becoming increasingly right-wing and, and with totalitarian aspirations to what ex- at what point is it important to no longer just sit back and and let um, sort of authoritarian or propagandistic governments uh, preach hate. And I think those are things that I would like to think that these sites contribute to to um, combating. Yeah. But I think it's also, it's really, it is a tall order to expect a memorial site to certainly to, to change, uh, to make any kind of uh, large scale intervention of that, of that kind. But I do think that um, if we think of them as being just part of the puzzle, of part part of the project mm-hmm. of of educating humanity about the evils of racism and anti-Semitism and, and anti-immigrant uh, ideology and all kinds of other that lead to violence, then I think there's no way to quantify it. There's probably no way to prove it, but I, I have to think that there is some some contribution. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I really like what you said about that it can provoke reflection about what it means to be a bystander, to be a person who's, you know, in a place of privilege, who's aware of these things happening, and then what do you do? And maybe just to add on to that, I think uh, one of the values of tourism to these sites in particular that you can't necessarily get from reading a book or watching a film is that you really are forced to confront the fact that this this horrible event took place in the same world in which we live. Mm-hmm. It's not just the product of, of an author's imagination. It's a, it's, you see the physical evidence of what took place and realize that it's still possible. Yeah. 
Yeah. So one of the critiques I've heard about just Holocaust education in general and the emphasis in the U.S. in particular to send uh, high school students from all over the country to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, one of the critiques I've heard people say is that the Holocaust then becomes the primary mechanism by which a lot of people around the world learn about Jews but that that then gives them an image of Jews as an almost dead culture rather than a robust set of cultures that exist today. Do you think that's a fair critique? How might you respond? I mean, again, it's sort of like, is, is this the responsibility of Holocaust memorial sites to deal with this? So I'm curious what you think about that concern that um, such a primary way that people learn about Jews is through the Holocaust and through Holocaust memorials. Yeah, I, I, I do think that's a legitimate concern. And I think there is a real risk that that is one possible outcome is that uh, somebody who's perhaps unfamiliar with the history of Judaism in Europe, of Jewish uh, culture in Europe, may come away from from an experience of Holocaust tourism just with knowledge about the Holocaust, but no no real appreciation of, of what exactly the Holocaust erased. And so uh, it's interesting that there seem to be more and more efforts to commemorate the vitality of Jew- Jewish culture in Europe, hmm. as, as uh, although that's always a, a fraught project. So I think two two museums in particular come to mind. One is the Jewish Museum in Berlin, uh, which uh, is a city that has actually had uh, some growth in the Jewish population hmm. over the last couple of decades, primarily because of Jews leaving. Uh, Russia hmm. and and moving to Germany because of a perception that Germany is. Of, of, of all places, ironically, now is a much safer place to be right. if one is Jewish. Yeah. Um, the other place would be the museum, uh, the Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews hmm. in Warsaw, which is a fantastic museum that does an amazing job of describing the thousand-year history of Jewish culture in Poland. Hmm. Uh, and obviously, it uh, does have to acknowledge the Holocaust at the end of the exhibit, but what what, what it does well, uh, although it's not without its critique critics also, sure. uh, but it definitely does introduce the visitor to the richness of Jewish life. Our architectural styles of synagogues and different trades and practices at different times and, and the rise of the shtetl mm. and, and the, in, the commerce between Jewish and non-Jewish Poles that took place. And, and of course, the long history of pogroms that also accompany that history. So it's not all, all a bed of roses. So that I think is, I, in, in, in short, I, I guess I would agree that it's really important to not let the Holocaust be the final word, but it's also really important not to come to answer to respond to the holocaust with a sort of triumphalist uh, story that see jewish culture has returned to berlin has returned Mm. to warsaw Mm -hmm. i think they have returned in as remnants but nothing like the vitality that was the case prior to the Holocaust. So the last thing I want to ask you, since travel is opening up again for vaccinated listeners, are there uh, examples, you know, you've you've just mentioned this museum in in Poland. Are there other examples of Holocaust tourism sites that you think are done well that you might recommend to others as possible places to visit? Yeah, well, I definitely do think that the major Holocaust museums that most people would be familiar with, Auschwitz-Birkenau, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., and Yad Vashem in Jerusalem are well worth the visit. 
Um, I think that they each have a different story to tell or have a different message to convey, but they do a great job of kind of presenting a comprehensive history. I have a um, preference, though, for sites of tourism, of Holocaust remembrance, that try to tell a specific story about a specific hmm. event in the Holocaust. Uh, I think one of the most uh, impressive sites that I can recommend in Berlin is the House of the Vanze Conference. Uh, hmm. This is the conference where the Nazi officials uh, basically ratified the plan for extermination. I finalized their plans for what they came to call the final solution yeah. uh, of the Jewish question. And it does a brilliant job of presenting the history of anti-Semitism and then how the various methods the Nazis used to gradually marginalize uh, the Jewish population to shame Germans who uh, continued to uh, associate with Jews all the way through to the to the Holocaust um, and and also beyond. Um, so I, I strongly recommend that site. It's mm. also a, a manageable site in terms of size and, and the amount of information it contains. I also say one, one thing I'm fond about Berlin uh, in general is that it has so many local memorials that try to tell just a very specific story uh, about a particular site. Uh, so there's a, an amazing memorial in the Bayerischer Platz, the Bavarian Plaza um, district of, of Berlin. And uh, it's also all over Europe now you have the Stolpersteine, these these stumbling stones, which are these brass-plated yes. uh, cobblestones that commemorate individuals who uh, who at their sites of former sites of residence and say briefly when they were born, uh, what happened to them, and uh, where they perished, if they perished, or if they survived. So they do an amazing job of, re of rather than trying to tell the entire story of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. remind us that each of those six million people was a was an individual who had a unique experience uh, a, a unique life story that came to a, an abrupt end yeah thank you i've seen them uh, walking in in italy i noticed them unexpectedly uh -huh. yeah and right yeah and and yeah and they're powerful and do exactly what you just did it really sort of personalizes it uh just in in within a daily routine of what you're doing that's right and i think that's the uh, you know the number of six million just can become so so abstract and unfathomable, and so this this way of approaching it as a story of individuals is 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 relatable. But it's also the way the fact the fact that the Holocaust took place not just in these remote extermination mm -hmm. camps, but also in office buildings in Berlin mm -hmm. uh, or uh, at neighborhood groceries that were targeted by the Gestapo mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, for, for during Kristallnacht and, and those kinds of things. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you. Thank you for this very interesting conversation. So that is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Daniel Reynolds. You can find an excerpt from his book, Postcards from Auschwitz, Holocaust Tourism and the Meaning of Remembrance in the Revealer's upcoming summer issue at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Postcards from Auschwitz wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing evangelical masculinity and its role in the current political climate. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.